Join me on my hunt as we travel in search of stories through the wind door. This journey has been long anticipated, and we are ready. from here more into the proper of three of the four of the final chapters. All right. Because so as we approach the end of the story, let's go back to the beginning. Yes, exactly. So <laughs> going back to the beginning. Goodness. Um, oh no, just queuing a audio line from uh, Zagreus, which is just like, all right, here we go. One more time. Just getting out of the blood pool. <laughs> I mean, at this point, we could even pull out uh, Chris Pine's voice. All right, let's do this one last time. <laughs> From uh, Into the Spider-Verse. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Okay. Exactly so. Yeah. Next up on the topic list, before we actually start talking about the story as we have seen thus far now from Haka's perspective, it's important to talk a little bit about the story structure that Tiger's Eye lives in. Like, we've had a chance now to talk a lot about how time flows differently for the cats of the new world, at the very least, in terms of having everything is yesterday, today, or the nebulous tomorrow, and everything like that. And so, therefore, Tiger's Eye follows that construction in certain ways because it interacts with the past and the present differently than other books that we have seen thus far. In Let Them Go and in Secret Rooms, there were specific chapters or at the very least specific places where the flashbacks of the past were relegated to in order to bring new context or bring new information about the things that we're seeing right now before dropping us back into the forward-moving timeline of the story. You know, mm -hmm. in the case of Rebecca or in the case of James and Abigail's story, they had their individual chapters and they were sometimes even segmented off with like, okay, this is going to be an entire not necessarily act, but, you know, this is part three of the story, and now this is going to tell you a whole bunch of stuff about what happened in the past that gives context to what is going on now, and now we're going to continue on with the rest of the story. Here, as you say, we are jumping back to the beginning and finding out about all of the things that make Haka tick. This dramatically affects a lot of the things that we have seen thus far in terms of we have been inside Prow's head and experienced things from her perspective as she has been trying to hide the past from herself in a way. And we have seen things from Miguel's perspective in that the past is a complex thing that constantly informs upon 
his evolution as a character, the dark stuff and the bright stuff, and the fact that he has had to live with certain things that are unresolved in his life in order to continue on. But their stories, by and large, Crow and, and Miguel's, are mostly separate up to this point. Because while it does cover events from Miguel's perspective that we had seen from Crow's perspective before, that encompassed a relatively short amount of time, all told. You know, mm. him, him actually coming into the world and then getting sick and being rescued by Hrau, being taken to the Silent One, and then the journey thus far, trying to get Miguel back to the Windor. Hmm. This is the first time where we get to see some of Hrau's past as well, but not from Hrau's perspective. It means that what we're getting in terms of storytelling here is something that's a little bit closer to, say, a Rashomon vibe, where mm. it's not that we have unreliable narrators that are being like, ah, but you don't know the whole story. You only know the story as this person over here who is biased. We have suddenly an expansion of the story based on someone that simply had information that other characters didn't have, not that they were unwilling to tell us or that they were ashamed to tell us or that they were trying to conceal because they didn't want anyone to know that they're a murderer or anything like that. It's just a major shifting in, in perspective that is still centered around somebody else's mindset. So while it may end up telling us things about Krau or Durga tribe or about the world that we didn't know before, it's all still most important in terms of what it tells us about Hakka. Especially since when there are scenes that involve Hrau, we don't see those scenes from her perspective. We see them from Hakka's, and therefore his interpretation of them. That means that any conclusions that he comes to will be colored by his beliefs, and give more insight into who he is, rather than necessarily insight into other people. Hmm. It's a, I really enjoy that this goes back in time like this because it reinforces the impression of time that Tiger's eye frames itself in. Much of Rao's narration keeps itself on the present, hesitating or outright refusing to glance back to the past and perhaps not even consider all that much of the future beyond the immediate goals she has in mind. Yeah, As such, no, she is literally... I'm sorry, I didn't mean to step on you. No, 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 please go ahead. But this is the conversation that we were having at one point, is that in mm. her case, she was living in stasis. Mm. And so therefore, it really all had to be about today for her, because she didn't really have a tomorrow that she cared mm. about. It was only about getting by on a day-to-day -day basis. Yeah, she couldn't look at the the past, and she didn't really care all that much about the future. So it really is just a stasis in the present. And if you saw the story solely from Rao's perspective, then Tiger's Eye would be quite linear in how time is framed. Mm. Because you experience time, it then moves on, and today has become yesterday. It's a case of she's always looking at the present 
and the present just keeps rolling forward as we make our way through the story. It's only when she is kind of forced to look at the past through her sleep, through her dreams, that she ever thinks and relays moments from the past. But then you have characters like Miguel and Haka who do go back. Time spirals in on itself and the distant past, recent past and present fold in together and establish one flowing continuity that, as you say, prevents the past and present from feeling distinct. But what's the effect of all this flowing depiction of time? What is the point? I think it's that with trips to the past like these, and even with Rao remembering Carol, it brings the past into the present, demonstrating how the past stays with you, impacts what you do as you move forward, actively affecting the present. The past is not just in a distant place behind you, and even the future is not just in an unreachable place ahead of you. They both come into your consideration of what you do here and now in the present. And that's why in Tiger's Eye, they say it is today, but they will also say it is yesterday. Mm, yeah. <laughs> See, I keep having to refer to things that we haven't talked about yet, but I suppose I can mention them because they are a part of chapters that our listeners would have read to. But mm. when I ended up quoting that bit where the shaman Brask is talking to Haka and he says the line, Change is going to come eventually, no matter how hard we fight it. What matters is how we act in the face of that inevitability. And change is a central focus of Haka's story, as we're going to go on to talk about, but it's also pretty central to Krau's story, because Miguel is the change, Miguel is the unexpected variable that causes her to break out of her ongoing cycle, that make it so that she has to confront her past, and has to consider her future beyond simply going out and hunting every day and mm. providing for her tribe. This has been a traumatic experience for her, but the change was something that she needed in order to come back into the world, one might say. Exactly. She may have been existing only in presence which makes you think that she would be like always active in, in the here and now and actually more engaged than someone who was living only in the past. But I think that it shows that she has to have that connection to these different points of time in order to be part of the world because mm. the world is not only connected to one point of time. It is not only just today, it is yesterday and it is tomorrow. It's all of these things all at once. And I think Crow reconnects to that somewhat as a result of the change that is introduced in this story. You know, there's a lot of different stories that talk about the experience of someone 
usually aliens, but you know, sometimes under other circumstances as well, where they don't experience time linearly. And that's always portrayed as being unusual. Like, how can you even live like that? Mm. But I think in certain ways, what we're nibbling around the edges of here in our complicated navel-gazing talk here is that we like to think of ourselves as linear people, but in some ways we're really not. Mm. You know, I've had a chance to re-listen to the movie Arrival very recently, and part and parcel of that was, again, going back and hearing what Alex and Sharon had to say about elements of that. And that is definitely a story that involves experiencing time non-linearly and how that affects people and how that affects the world. And there was also a separate piece of media that I asked you to look into for different reasons, where the idea of experiencing time non-linearly is a function of an alien race. We weren't, aren't going to get into that too much right now because I want to save that discussion for our final conversation because it's going to become bigger when we discuss Tiger's story in its entirety. Yeah, exactly. Mm. But if there's one thing that particular episode of television suggests that and that Tiger's Eye itself suggests that is the idea that we live our lives linearly is in fact a misnomer. We are people that constantly worry about the future or choose not to worry about the future because it seems too much for us to be able to handle. And we sometimes try and separate ourselves from our past because we are embarrassed about it, because we are ashamed about it, or because it, we act like it doesn't really matter to us. But to say that we don't, that these things don't affect us at all, that they don't come into play in the here and now, would seem to be disingenuous. We are what our experiences make of us. Everything we do is shaped by memory and instinct, and those are shaped by our past. One of my favorite quotes from Deepak Chopra is, The things we are most afraid of have already happened to us. We know to be afraid because of how we felt when we suffered physical or mental or emotional pain. Part of us relives that moment. If we could separate ourselves from our past, then we would not be the person that we are. And so, therefore, it feels like Tiger's Eye is trying to explore that in a little bit of a way through these cats that are more willing to accept that living non-linearly is something we can't actually avoid doing. Uh, mm. even if we try to, like Harau does. Yeah. And are we mentioning what the piece of media that we're referring to is now, or are we saving that for... Well, we'll get into the specifics later, but uh, yeah, when we do our final episode, for those of you that are curious, because we are going to be spoiling things a little bit in order to have the conversation, uh, I recommend 
that people go and very at the very least watch the pilot episode of Deep Space Nine. So that would be season one, episode one. I guess it possibly episode one and two. I forget uh, if it's separated out in like. If, if you're watching the first episode, you'll see the whole story from. You know, I watched it on Netflix, and that covered everything. Okay, fair enough. So yeah, that episode, which is referred to as Emissary, the other episode that we're going to be spoiling and talking about because it's relevant to some of the larger themes that I'm going to want to discuss, is one of the final episodes of that season, and it's called Duet. It is, I believe, uh, episode 21. So yeah, if you don't mind taking some time out and watching those episodes you'll be fully prepared for some of the conversations we'll be having a month from now, I guess. We'll see how many episodes this uh, this segment Three, is going to last. Three, four, five. five. <laughs> so, yes, moving away from uh, non-linear time, we go towards Hackett's story. Yeah, and this is something that we are going to be poking our fingers to again and again a little bit as we continue to talk about this and may very well likely be part of our final wrap-up conversation. Haka has been an antagonist for Rao and Miguel all of this time, but as we get into his experiences and why it is that he is doing what he is doing and seeing him as an actual person rather than just this stalking Terminator force that we referred to earlier, we have to now ask this question, and we may not necessarily have an answer, but it's the asking of it that will help us understand. Has Haka been the protagonist this whole time? Well, (laughs) he has indeed been going on his own journey in a Mm -hmm. very literal sense, and You know what? His story does involve a mentor, an inciting incident, a purpose, and a focal point that he fixates on as his goal, his antagonist Miguel, the one that he believes, until that last all-important moment that we will get to, to be the one actively working against him and everything he values, who he believes is actively influencing and manipulating Rao. In a lot of ways, Haka has all the components to have his own story be told about him. And we are. This is it. This is Haka's story. Yeah. Well, that's the thing, is that how do we incorporate that with everything that we have known thus far? Because when we began... Rao is the understandable solo protagonist because we see her going along in her life and something upends it. Someone that is at first an object and later becomes a subject in their own right, but it's still her story as she chooses to take on this quest in order to do what she feels is the right thing, but also in at the end of the day to protect her tribe as well and then that ends up getting upended a little bit once we have miguel take the microphone instead and say hey i bet you're wondering what's been going on with me this whole time let me tell you my backstory and that turns it into a dual protagonist story where they are working together towards a common goal 
even if that, well, I mean, in some cases, it's just like, okay, we got to get off this ship or we got to rescue the other cats or something like that. Mm -hmm. But the point is, is that Hrow and Miguel are generally aligned in what they want. They want to be together. They want to protect each other. They want to protect other people. And so therefore, having them be dual protagonists, much in the way that Abigail and James are dual protagonists, makes sense for the overall story. What does it mean if we actually have a third protagonist that views one of the previous protagonists as an antagonist? Much in the way that Crow and Miguel viewed Haka as being an antagonist, even though maybe not the biggest antagonist, because as obviously been said at this point, the Lions of Albion are the greater, larger threat to everyone and not just to Miguel and, and Hrow. How can we reconcile this idea that we can have three protagonists and they have different opinions on who the antagonist is? <clears throat> <laughs> so Catra... Oh, okay. Oh, goodness. Oh, okay. oh you're All right. Just in case there is anyone that is a fan of Alex's stuff and hasn't watched this show yet, the Catra we are referring to is a character in the Netflix animated series She-Ra and the Princesses of Power. But no, it's uh, just the similar dynamic of... In that storyline, I think you're constantly aware that Catra is a both antagonist and protagonist in that you are following her story almost just as much as you were following Adora and her crew, though you are always aware that Catra is not like pursuing goals that are... This is not our she episode. You can listen to that. Did we release that? No, we haven't no, released that. We haven't released it yet. Honestly, no. I, I uh, haven't even gotten back to it yet. No. But um, yeah, anyway, the... Um, my the point I wanted to actually get to is that with Hacker, like he is the protagonist, but he is in opposition, so it kind of has to come at the tail end of the story. It has to be this thing. <laughs> tail that end. Yes. I, I, I knew I knew <laughs> I knew it. Um I knew neither of us could resist that. But anyway, the <laughs> bookend of this story, Hacker's introduced because you have to be on side with uh, Miguel and Frau, and we know that Miguel is not a demon. We just, mm-hmm. we can tell this. Humanity has all sorts of problems, but we are, as humans reading this, maybe the uh, feline readership of New Century is less cued into this, but as humans reading this, we can see that Miguel is a relatively harmless kid, so Hacker's objective, we inherently know, is misguided. Mm-hmm. So it's difficult for if we were following him earlier on for us to really side with him at all, which is why we kind of need to see everything that happened in the distant past for his conclusions there to kind of make sense. You see exactly why he thinks that Miguel is this omen of so much wrong and it's off the back of years or an, a long time of Haka kind of being at a loss he has 
he has experienced loss as much as Carol affected Harau, I think a lot more than it ever affected Haka. He still lost a cub and he's been in this relationship that for a long time has just, he is at a loose end. Mm. That is a thing about his character that we will have to go into, but that's for another time. If some of that feels a little jumbled, it's because around this point we realized that it's hard to fully answer the question without mining out a lot of the events of these chapters. We had pages and pages of notes, but the conclusions are still a little nebulous, and we needed to actually talk this out in order to fully understand the question and the potential answers to it. But even as we started reorganizing and planning to discuss Haka's past, another question came to mind. Why is Haka's story being told to us now? It would seem like the story is coming to a natural end. Mm. And I think I have an answer, one that came to me just as you were speaking now, is that there's an assumption when you're experiencing a story that your protagonist will undergo some change or that they will learn something. Mm-hmm. And all throughout, Haka has been this immutable antagonist. And it almost becomes this like silent hope that by the very act of telling Haka's story, that showing he has been on this journey, mm-hmm. that there are all these experiences that have propelled him to this moment by framing everything that has happened so far as a story, we then have to ask, how does this story end? And mm-hmm. by asking that question, it, to me, is almost in line with, almost parallel or the equivalent of asking what is Haka going to learn as a protagonist? Later on in these chapters, we get introduced to the concept of shaman going on spirit walks, that when it's time for them to leave their tribe in the hands of someone else, that they are going out into the world. And his predecessor mentions that maybe he'll learn something that he didn't know yet that he's taught Haka everything that he knows but maybe the next thing for him is to know something else to find out something more when Haka goes out on this journey he is not saying that this is his spirit walk and yet he is leaving the tribe in the hands of someone else his protege so in effect this is his spirit walk Mm. and That means this is a journey, and the destination of that journey, as is so often the case in any story worth telling, is a lesson that you learn and bring home with you. And that's precisely what Haka does. And that's why it's introduced here at the end, is that because up to this point, we have lamented the fact that Haka and Hral are so at odds that it cannot be reconciled and it seems hopeless. But as we are approaching the point where Haka is going to have a fundamental realisation about the life he has led so far and the actual nature of Miguel, it is essential 
that we see all of the collected experiences which have informed upon that new insight. And it is the moment we start hearing not just little bits of Hucker's perspective, but an actual story with a lot of time, a, a full hour of audio drama dedicated to Hucker's entire life up to this moment. It is leading to the point of he is a protagonist too, and that gives you a little bit of hope. It's showing two conclusions, one that Hucker is aware of and one that he has no idea about yet. The first conclusion is everything that I've experienced on my journey so far is leading me to killing this demon. This is the only thing that I can do. And the other conclusion is everything that he is not listening to. He is not actually taking in and internalizing. And it's what we are seeing here and there. And it's likely that the reader, the listener, is putting the pieces together long before Hucker ever does. And that's why we're seeing this story, is to kind of almost see what the conclusion this is leading to and willing Hucker to be able to see it. It becomes a possibility that he's had all these pieces. If he just puts them together, maybe that's a resolution. I'm trying to figure out how much I want to say now and how much I want to save this for our final overview of Tiger's Eye. But in response to a bunch of the stuff that you just threw at me, the the thing that I want to posit is that the reason why his journey is important, the reason why it's important to recognize him as not just being an antagonist for Harau and Miguel, but as being a protagonist in his own right, is that the experiences that Haka has from being a very small cub to being an adult chasing down his nemesis in the form of Miguel, that his story could potentially stand on its own, but it's really meant to be a third facet of the larger story that is Hrau's story and Miguel's story combined. Like, mm-hmm. there are things that we learn as a result of being in Haka's mind that give greater depth and give us information that Hrau and Miguel have not provided us this far. And it becomes not just, it not only makes their stories deeper as we see everything come to a final resolution, but this is a journey that all of them have been going on together. Mm. And that the growth that they have as a result, the change that has come over all of them, they are interlocking puzzle pieces in this way that things have to play out as they do in order for them to come to the final resolutions that they do, in order for them to grow and become better people going out into the world, but also in terms of the overall themes that Tiger's Eye is trying to teach us. Put another way, 
if we don't tell Hakka's story, then it fundamentally changes the story itself. Treating him only as an antagonist would be anathema to the nature of what Tiger's Eye is trying to do. And it needs to be here not just for those larger themes, but because his journey helps bring resolution to both Miguel's journey and Rao's journey, and their journey's resolution to his. But I'm getting ahead of myself. So there, there, there's, there's a smaller picture in terms of the individuals, and there's a bigger picture in terms of the epic story and the themes that it is trying to convey to us. Mm. You know, not all stories manage to do that. Some stories try and fail, but there's a lot going on here. So let's before but and before so before we can actually talk about the larger themes, which are going to be their own episode, own multiple episodes at this point. Uh, let's start getting into some of those details. Mm-hmm. Just as Miguel went all the way back to when he was a small child to start telling his story. Haka does the same. One could consider it almost necessary because not only does it just show us a developing through line of how Haka became the person and the shaman he is, much the same as we see how Miguel became who he is. As mentioned earlier, it gives us a lot of additional context for Harau since her story goes as far back as his. Some of those elements include a further fleshing out of the mythology. One of the very first parts of Hawke's story is learning about Water Leopard and how her story relates to Hawke gaining notoriety among the other cubs because he is able to get more information out of Brask as a result of it. Mm-hmm. It tells us that a concept like the Northern Lights exist in this world. But as you mentioned, that story is also important because it reflects on some of the themes that have been espoused in Tiger's Eye in general. Mm. Uh, Well, it's a story of someone making a journey while still grieving for the loss of someone they love, but they are reintroduced to light a literal light <laughs> and a feeling of happiness that cements their resolve to continue. So that that's yeah. an analogy for our journey. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I, again, you, I, I was looking at the forest, but you, you noticed the individual tree there. So well done for like, you know, pointing that out that this is Krause story in microcosm there a little bit. So yeah, we, we, we've got that. And, uh, in addition, I do want to take a moment to point something else out. There was a further conversation online in terms of how many gods they have as a part of the Durga tribe mythology, never mind how that mythology works for something like Yamaya tribe or any of the other aboriginal tribes of the New World. Um, there are seven gods, and while they're never specifically mentioned in order in this like there six of them are mentioned as being part of the origin story which is why i thought there were six and why the possibility that dark panther and the father of passing might actually be the same god but 
the thing that Haka refers to over and over again is the seven, which means that we've got the five, excuse me, we've got the four elemental gods, Fire Lion being one of them and being the head of the Pantheon. Meanwhile, he's got, they've got Earth Jaguar, Water Leopard, and Air Cheetah. Following that is the Dark Panther and the Tiger of Light, making five and six. But since time of recording, we have also learned from Alex's own words that the Father of Passing is actually not one of the seven. That when he is invoked by Haka and Rao, that their belief in this spirit of reincarnation is an older mythology and not tied to the other cat gods. Meaning that we have yet to know who the seventh god is. Though based on Alex's cryptic words, I suspect that knowledge may be revealed soon in Panther Soul. Meanwhile, Toby and I reflect on what it meant that they paid homage to both Dark Panther and the Father of Passing, since from the few things we learn about Dark Panther from Haka's narration, he is also a god of death. Yeah, I think it is in the same way that when you look at a lot of gods in classical mythology and in all manner of cultures from throughout the world's history, there will be multiple gods who tend to kind of overlap. Like you'll mm -hmm. get multiple gods who are the gods of war and you think, okay, so do they work together on this? To me, an example that pops to mind is uh, how you have Ares and Athena. And mm -hmm. to me, that feels like you have the tactical side of war and the sort of physical conflict, which that might be woefully inaccurate. So any classicists out there who want to pick a fight, then that is absolutely fine, I concede. Honestly, I'll just throw up a link to OSP's YouTube episode on the subject, as I think they explain the difference just fine. That's kind of what I'm seeing here, is that you have these two gods that embody different elements of death. And the Father of Passing is what many of these cats and Prow seem to derive a lot of comfort from whenever they're confronted with death that's what they do is they're like a death rite is go with the father of passing that is what comes next and the story mentions that there is a, a bit of a fear of dark panther that Hacker kind of almost takes as a point of pride that he is able to actually understand the importance of Dark Panther, even though emotionally a lot of cats find that difficult. And that's because I think that the Father of Passing represents the spirit and what like comes next and what journey that spirit goes on. Mm -hmm. But Dark Panther to me embodies the death of the form. That is quite a finite concept that the moment of death for the physical body, the form that you know this spirit in, and that is, I think, what frightens and puts the cats off the Dark Panther. And when Hako is confronted with death in not just a theoretical sense, it's quite difficult for him to really be able to put his money where his mouth is and actually preach the exactly what he thought Dark Panther's role in all of this was. I think there it's the fact that whatever form Hra's mother may have, may or may not have taken in her next life, 
the simple fact of the matter is that Dark Panther embodies the finite death of Rao's mother as she knew her and her presence and influence on her life. So I think that's a fascinating encapsulation or potential interpretation of this view of death is that there are some things which never die, Mm -hmm. but there is nevertheless an acknowledgement that there is something that is lost. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the idea of gods overlapping in various ways is something that's been uh, intrinsically present in a lot of different mythologies. I've had a chance to look into a number of them over the years, including some which are purely fictional, such as the gods of the... Uh, setting of Forgotten Realms, in which case at one point there was specifically a god of death, just the concept of death. There was a god of the dead, as in the, the person that would rule over the underworld. And then there was the god of dying, not of war or anything like that, but specifically of one person killing another. So I guess in theory, the god of killing or the god of murder, like it's framed a couple different ways. If you want a real-world example where it gets really complicated, Haitian Vudon has an entire family of divinities that care about different aspects of death and surrounding related concepts like cemeteries or those that bring souls to the afterlife. Some of these loa are friendly, some dark and dangerous, and some in between. On top of that, along the way, there have been other interpretations on, like, if you're the god of one thing, then does that mean you're also god of its opposite? You, you mentioned specifically Athena, generally associated as being the goddess of wisdom, but you're absolutely right in that she is considered a goddess of warfare as well, as you say, the, the tactical or the um, potential technological aspects of it Mm. as opposed to Ares who is just all about the purity of people killing each other on the field and everything like that you're you've gotten a chance to play Hades recently so you know how all about how Ares is just all about oh yeah you kill those people really good you should take some of my boons so that you can kill them even better next time you know that that's kind of his deal in general um, to to anyone getting a kick out of that, I recommend the uh, Overly Sarcastic Productions series of Divinities, which is just uh, different pantheons of gods who are recreating well-known vines, and you just have, <laughs> like, Ares saying, uh, someone saying to Ares, oh, shake what your mother gave you. My mother never gave me anything. <laughs> and it's just stuff like that, so... That's a fun minute to waste on. Yeah, fair enough. Okay. In some of the older traditions, or at the very least, separate from the ones that we typically hear about, like Greek and Egyptian, for example, in Sumerian and Babylonian mythologies, it used to be that the idea of life and death would be encapsulated in that same god. Uh, Inanna or Ishtar at one point was viewed as being both a goddess of fertility as well as a goddess of death or war. 
basically. Mm. Usually war, because they tend to separate out death as being like whoever's in charge of the underworld and such like. But yeah. yeah. It's it's whichever aspect of that god or uh, deity that is practical and useful, which war is often on people's minds, so they will invoke the parts that they need. But I think that the notion that you're getting out of a god kind of embodying not only one thing, but its opposite, I think does speak to the concept that sometimes something can't really exist without its opposite, or it's defined by its opposite. So if you're, it's in the same way that I forget the name of the myth, but it's in Greek mythology, the idea of the goddess whose presence creates spring, her absence creates winter. So the figure... You're literally talking about the the Persephone myth there, That's it. which That's which it. brings it right back around to yeah. In that particular case, Persephone being ostensibly kidnapped by Hades because he wanted his own bride, and how that all plays out because Persephone's mother is the goddess of the harvest, goddess of fertility, not of fertility of people, but in terms of the growth of plants and bounty. that bounty yes exactly that that whole conflict and how that plays out is supposedly the explanation for why the seasons turn because while persephone is with her mother then the 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 world is fecund and things grow and animals go out and make other animals and you know plant their their plants can be you know, used to feed people, and then when Persephone returns to Hades, because that's the arrangement that was made, and everyone's like, oh, I'm all sad now, I'm going to blanket the earth in snow, because everyone suffer for my not being able to have my daughter around and everything like that. So yeah, an interesting synchronicity we have going on there. This is the kind of thing that gods are generally for. They are here to explain cycles and duality and all that sort of thing like that they're here to explain the big subjects why does lightning exist because some asshole in the cloud is throwing <laughs> spears around yeah or, it's fun yeah <laughs> or why do we hear the like howling winds of winter outside well because there's a wild hunt outside don't go outside <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly it does make me wonder what further work Alex may end up doing in terms of developing the pantheon of Rama. The pantheon? <laughs> the, the pantheon, yeah, exactly. <laughs> for God's sake, this is how we go on for six plus hours. We keep getting distracted by shiny subjects, following them down rabbit holes, and then on top of it, make even more cat puns. Well, he's working on Panther Soul right now, so this is going to be the opportunity for him to choose to get into a little bit more of that myth-making and storytelling, should he so choose. And it definitely seems like we will learn a lot more from the tidbits Alex has been dropping on the run-up to the release of Panther Soul. But we're not here to talk about that yet, so let's move away from the big-picture stuff and back to the personal. Let's talk a little bit more about what we learn as a result of Hakka's backstory. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I pushed forward as the overall feelings 
that came up as a result of rereading his experiences when he was young and how those translated into his experiences when he was older was that it felt like Haka had a real humility issue. Everything that he experienced just seemed to boost up his own opinion of himself and mm-hmm. make him arrogant. For those of you that have heard us talk with Spencer about his interpretation of Haka, this may seem like an unusual conclusion, to which I would say two things. First, this conversation was recorded prior to our interview with Spencer. But on top of that, I was specifically prefacing this topic with the caveat that this is how I felt rereading it on my own. Obviously, our ongoing dialogue will help flesh out and inform our conclusions better, so bear with us. When he's a cub, that can be understandable, because children, teenagers in particular, but I mean children in general, they have a tendency towards selfishness, which they have to learn to grow out of a little bit. They have a tendency towards believing that they know everything. They know more than the adults around them. Mm. But in Haka's case, it felt like every important experience that we are shown that are a part of his life only seemed to feed that, and he never got enough of an experience or a pushback to suggest anything other than being assured that he was meant to be who he is, that he was meant to be someone important, that he was meant to be a shaman, that he was meant to protect everybody else, and Mm. that he therefore always had the capacity in him to know what the right thing is to do. That's a major developmental problem for Haga. Because there, there is not anything in his experience that is enough to gainsay him away from this belief. Mm. By example, he told these stories that he learned from Brask to the other children, even though there was the implication that you know these were the secret stories that only the shaman was supposed to know. And he was not reprimanded for having share this information with the children. He did so in order to boost up their opinion of him, and Brask's response was to be like, okay, let's see if you have the makings of a shaman within you. He wasn't punished for that. I'm not necessarily suggesting that he should have been punished for it, but it's the beginning of a trend that has eventual disturbing implications. Mm. Because the very next important event that we see in Haka's development was his experience of learning about the story of the humans that used to be a part of this world and the fact that they had the power to kill even the greatest of cats. And Brask was trying to teach something to Haka about this idea of change coming no matter how hard you try to fight against it. And Haka was steadfast in his belief that no, there, there, there has to be a way to fend off doom. 
Which is an admirable sentiment. Yeah, it is an admirable sentiment in general, but... Uh, well, okay, so... The thing that you pushed back at me with now, just now, is that, you know, in a different person, we would see that as being a good thing. We would see Haka being like, no, I'm going to find a way to defend my people no matter what. I don't believe in the inevitability of something that will destroy our people no matter what. I will fight and I will try to protect these things that I value. Especially because, and I do want you to continue with your point, so I'll do this quickly, but especially because towards the end of Hucker's narrative, when he is thinking on what some of the other chieftains and the other cats from different tribes are thinking, he says they actually think that they can win this, or not only win this, but survive this. And it's with such a sort of cynical critical edge to it that it is designed to kind of show you just how far Hucker has fallen from his noble original or seemingly noble original intentions of doing something in order to fight back against an inevitable oncoming threat and the fact that he is disparaging that is an indication that his motivation for killing Miguel has been warped and is gone so far away from what it was originally intended as. Mm. By the time we've gotten to that point, it's been thoroughly affected by so many other events. When, and biases. When, and biases and traumas and everything like that. Right now, he's just a young cat learning from his master and believing or choosing to believe that because he is who he is, that he can find a way to split the Gordian knot, one might say, mm. and succeed even against overwhelming odds. This is definitely an unfair reading by me. Haka may not be hearing what Brask is trying to teach, but there is nothing in what Haka says that suggests he believes he can do this because he is the chosen one, or something like that. Merely that he is committed to finding a way, because the alternative is too terrible to imagine. So I guess, listeners, you can hear what I had to say about my disapproval of Haka, and ask yourselves what it means about me. But let us continue. Uh, At the time, Brask chooses not to push him on this, or at the very least, it seems like Brask accepts a what's the word, a compromise on the belief of this. But the suggestion, perhaps, is that, especially as we reflect on his words as they come back to Haka in the end, that this is less about protecting the tribe from an overwhelming enemy force, but the idea that you can't necessarily protect the tribe from all change, and that you shouldn't. Yeah, something that's significant here is that because Hacker has become this, like, he is training in the profession of telling stories, he is kind of, like, being reinforced from that initial impression of him telling the story to his fellow young cubs and feeling like he was the authority on that, that he is now the master of stories, which means mm. that he 
has cemented this impression that his interpretation of stories is the most accurate one. It is the mm-hmm. right one. So his take on the prophecy of the these humans, these demons, is that something must be done. He is not going to be shaken from that interpretation of the story because as far as he is concerned, his role is to be the provider and explainer and the person who tells you these stories and what you derive from them. And naturally, Hawker wouldn't want to tell a story where there is no hope. He certainly wouldn't want to believe there is no hope. But the trick here is, he disagrees fundamentally what the intent of the story is, because he isn't yet capable of grasping the nuance of Brask's intent in sharing it. On top of that, as Haka starts learning about how to use the magics of the shaman, he is continuing to explore this idea. What if I take this farther? What about instead of trying to ride uh, an unthinking or a, a purely instinctive animal, what happens if I try to take over a thinking person and Brask punishes him for it, but... In this particular case, Brask's response seems to be primarily out of fear for doing something that he himself was told not to do. They don't end up having a complicated conversation about why it is a bad idea to do what he did. He just mm-hmm. responds violently and says, no, you you can't do this. And he's like, you don't understand why it's a bad idea to do this, but Brask never really gives a concrete explanation for why this is a bad idea, other than you're not supposed to do it. Other people might try to not excommunicate, but try to punish them Mm. for doing something that he himself learned was verboten. He communicates that it is a, a taboo that he should never do again, but he does not. I think he falls short of actually conveying to Haka the true reason why this is such a like a line that you do not cross. Mm-hmm. We've all played uh, Mario Odyssey, and we throw the hat onto things and see how just how far that power can stretch. But it comes with a responsibility. I have actually never played Mario Odyssey, but I know enough to explain that Toby is referring to the fact that you can throw your hat onto another creature in the game and take mental control of that creature as being a part of the game's mechanics. Of course, that's also a game aimed at kids, and is not in the business of teaching the dangers of mind control. Obviously, we can have our own conversations of understanding of why it is a bad idea to use mind control or to usurp agency from other thinking creatures. And there could be a whole conversation about a particular subplot I... from Mass Effect 2 on that matter. Mm. Yep, no. <laughs> Does this unit have a soul? Um, but <laughs> I think that to me it would become a question of where does the line stop when you do that for Hacker he is constantly trying to get people to see his way mm-hmm. and it would be a bad thing for any cat to be able to have this power it would be a terrible thing for Haka to just be able to steer people because oh god you're right yes the idea of okay you 
if I'm not able to convince you with my words, what happens if I try to convince you with my mind? Mm. Oh, God. I, yeah. And I think that like, as much as in story, there would be a number of reasons why previous shamans would say you can't do this. Mm. I think that Alex writing this would probably say, I can't give Haka this power because of the place he is in for the majority of this story, mm-hmm. there is very little reason why he would not go down a very fast, slippery road and just kind of not be able to come back from that. There's just so much he would... Like, the fight in the ruins, as soon as he realises, ultimately, this can only go one way, just imagine what he would do in order to bring that to a definitive end. You know, that actually puts into perspective his belief on what Miguel is doing to Hrau, because he doesn't want to admit the possibility that she is right. Therefore, Miguel must be controlling her, and mm-hmm. that that explanation works perfectly for him, because he's been taught that it's wrong to usurp the mind of a thinking creature. So, so this so thing is wrong, this... therefore it's using this wrong act. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It, it, it has to be that explanation. It has to be something is going on that I've been taught is verboten, and that's mm. simple proof that Miguel is therefore evil. It can't, yeah. be, that, it can't be that I'm wrong, and mm-hmm. that Crow is thinking about this with more clarity or more compassion than I am. Am I so out of touch? No, it's the children who are wrong. That fits so perfectly well with the picture of Haka that we're drawing mm. up here in terms of his experiences. And, mm. it's, <laughs> and it has to be something that he can't actually do himself because even when we see that the only other time that he actually does try to do this again is when he is at his most desperately wanting to stop Rao's violation. It's it, That is an act of desperation on his part, and mm-hmm. he is unable to do it because it's just it's not something he's practiced, and mm-hmm. it's maybe not even something that he could ever really be able to mm-hmm. cross that line. So it remains this ability that he has never been able to take on for himself. So it becomes this other power. So to see something that in his mind, manipulation comes so easily, that will cement the impression that this is something that has easy access to dark and terrible Mm. abilities. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so we've got all of this, and... One of the things that we've been nibbling around the edges of, but haven't necessarily said outright, is that Brask is doing his best to teach the ways of the shaman to Haka, but it never really feels like the two of them have a trustworthy, intimate relationship. Brask trusts Haka enough to share everything he knows with them. But it seems clear that after the moment where Brask is punishing Haka for even trying to take over the mind of a panther, Haka admits himself that their relationship is further damaged. They mm-hmm. don't ever try to have the bigger conversation to come to some sort of 
understanding and greater appreciation of each other. And then Brask just leaves. He decides, okay, I'm, I'm going out on my spirit walk, as you mentioned earlier, because it's time for me to go out into the world and try to learn something new. I am now going to leave you in charge of the tribe. I want you to lead them as I led them and to offer your wisdom to them. And this becomes an endorsement of everything Haka is up to that point. And that's particularly frustrating when all of the major events that we have seen up till that point with the added knowledge of everything that Haka has done throughout the story so far, show us that Haka very much wants to be a good person and a good leader, but he's not necessarily in the right mindset for that. He has not learned enough. He has not gained enough of what we think the proper attributes are. But Brask has basically put a a gold stamp on Haka's abilities and said, no, no, you've learned everything that I can teach you. That means you're ready to be a shaman. And we don't feel that. We don't agree with that. Mm -hmm. We are frustrated by Brask accepting that, you know, I've taken you as far as I can go, and now I'm going to leave you to figure things out yourself. On top of that, it doesn't feel like, especially as we learn more about the rest of the story of Durga tribe and how Haka ends up interacting with the, uh, the brother and sister chiefs and everything like that. It doesn't feel like there is anybody that he would be willing to listen to in order to get a proper differing opinion that he would respect. When I look at this, I think to myself, yeah, okay, maybe Haka is good at being a shaman in some respects, but I would feel a lot more comfortable if Brass continued to stay around or if there was some other potential check on his behavior that would show him that just because you're a shaman doesn't mean that you're quote-unquote God, I guess. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously he knows he's not the Seven, but being mm-hmm. the mouthpiece of the Seven means that he is sort of buying into his own hype a little bit. I a line that comes to mind for me for this though, Haka doesn't necessarily reflect on it, this line in particular, but Brask says you have to lead them until you find someone better than you. Mm. That's what I did. And that is a it's a statement of kind of conflicting feelings because depending on how you focus it you could focus on one or the other or both where you say is brask saying hucker is better than him Mm -hmm. it seems like he is and then the question becomes but what does he mean by that Mm. is it just hucker's practical abilities as a shaman is he more powerful slash like more passionate and invested in this role as as a shaman than Brask is. It seems like it because of how sort of dispassionately or at least sort of like slightly distant Brask's sort of lilting delivery is as he's, he kind of has a Woody Harrison like, oh, kid, let's see what's going to, like it's, he's 
he he seems to have almost zero flair for showmanship. He mm. he will discuss things in a sort of instructional way, which I find like maybe a bit more sort of compelling as a sort of listening to him talk about this than I think either Hucker or perhaps even you do. But the other half of that statement is important that you have to look for someone better than you. That is a statement that as much as I am passing this to you, it is with the understanding that one day you will do the same for someone else. Mm. That is the way of things. This does not begin, nor does it end with you. To me, that's kind of an encouragement. Brask has told Hacker everything that he knows, but I don't think in this conversation he is saying that either of them are done, not by a long shot, because he is going on a spirit walk and he hopes to actually maybe learn something new from it. And Hucker has to find someone better than him. And to kind of recognise that is a form of growth, I think. In many ways, Brask is not a perfect fit for Hucker. He is his teaching style just does not mesh with him. Mm-hmm. And I think that what happens here is that Brask, and I don't condone or condemn this conclusion, but I think that after they grow distant, it becomes clear to him that there are certain things that as much as he is literally trying to beat it into him, where he goes, you're not listening. That is the lesson that, Hacker really needs to and eventually does come to learn but he is trying to tell that to him but he it's just not setting in and I think to a certain extent he realizes this is a lesson he's got to learn and I don't think he can learn it from me I am not being able to do this the longer I stay in this position where he is looking to me but not really listening to me mm-hmm. the more he will remain stagnant in this position and this is me inferring what his reasoning could be it may yeah. not be it may be but what i sort of feel might be happening here is that he kind of maybe realizes that haka has to learn this and if it can't be from him it has to be from something else and the sooner he can maybe push him onto his path to that something else, the better it might be for him. And I think the last piece of advice he has to give is the most important one, which is that you need to find someone better than you, because that is trying to introduce the fact that you will never be the best version of something. There will be someone better than you. And that's not something to fear. That's something to seek out. I will say later how I think that that someone else who is better than him may not actually be a different cat. I think in many respects that someone who is better than him is the version of himself after he comes back from his journey. This is why I keep saying that my partnership with Toby is so critical. Because insights like that is what makes me break out my favorite line from Firefly. But, you know, that goes in conflict to the practical advice that you do have to actually pass down this to relinquish 
this position to someone else. But I believe that there can be multiple and there are multiple meanings to this that Haka has to kind of really look into. Yeah. I guess when I first started writing about the way I felt regarding the relationship between Haka and Brask, uh, I went on a long tangent about being very frustrated with Brask as a teacher and feeling like I was trying to blame him for failing to be good enough for Haka because Mm -hmm. as a result, it feels like so much, so many misunderstandings happened along the way. Listening to you talk just now, one of the things that I had to consider even after writing out this outline and then getting your response to it is that part of the problem with this society that they are currently a part of is that everything is so separate. The tribes are small and don't necessarily talk with each other a whole lot. Mm -hmm. And each of them would seem to have one shaman and maybe one apprentice to go with it. Mm. It's not like other circumstances where there could be multiple teachers Mm. that are like, you know, okay, maybe this kind of teaching isn't going to work. Maybe I pass them over to this person instead. As far as the shamanic role is concerned, it's the one guy's responsibility to treat his apprentice. And mm-hmm. then, as you say, pass it down to the next person they find that they think will be a worthy successor to mm-hmm. holding all of this responsibility. But that's sort of a little bit of an indictment on putting all of your eggs in one basket. Mm-hmm. Uh, that if you, if this is all you have, then you aren't don't have a lot of resources available mm-hmm. to yourself in order to fix problems if the tools that you have available to you are not up to the task at hand. Mm. Um, Having said that, the idea of Brask realizing that maybe he's not up to teaching Haka what he needs to know himself, that he may need to learn it on his own, and the only thing that he can do is plant seeds in his mind that may come to fruition later on. That's a subject that we've already discussed it to some degree when relating to James and Abigail's experiences. At yes. And then yes. moving on into the world and learning new things from Frank and Annie. Mm. So, <laughs> so yeah, well. in, in, a, in a very real way, James and Abigail had opportunities to learn from others in the way that Haka himself did not. Mm. And one therefore has to consider the possibility you mentioned earlier that to view Haka's story as being his version of a spirit journey as he has to leave the tribe in order to go on this journey to learn something new can't necessarily know that Brask may have seen this in Haka's path, but it means that this journey had to happen mm-hmm. in order to break Haka out of his cycle as well. 
Though, to be honest, we don't really know what Brask knew or didn't. As we cover later, the shaman may well be open to prophetic dreams. Maybe Brask had some similar experience that led him to his decision to leave. We now need to consider the possibility that just as Hrau was in a form of stasis after the loss of Koral, that Haka himself was therefore in a, in a place of stasis, not necessarily because of Koral, because of different contributing factors and everything like that. That said, the loss of a cub and him not being able to fully come to terms with it would be seriously piling on. But that he perhaps imposed a form of stasis on himself, believing himself to be complete and whole in and of itself, and therefore not being open to necessary change that would show him that 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 would break him out of his comfort zone and help him learn that there were things that he did not know and needed to be open to learning. That's the essential thing, is that between Brask and Catherine, whatever our opinions of them uh, in terms of their successes or uh, failings as teachers and role models for protagonists of these books at a formative part in their life before the main events of their respective books, their mentorship is clearly not the end of these protagonists' development. Mm. Their ongoing hang-ups and issues that they could use a lot of support on are something that they kind of have to figure out later on in their life as they navigate the adult world and the events of these stories and i mean these teachers impart a lot of skills and knowledge that do help them get by practically but they don't go as far as helping them to resolve some of these personal flaws and ongoing anxieties they face so i neither condemn nor absolve them for that but it speaks to a larger theme in new century of our mental health and relationships with other people as mature adults requiring work far into our lives, far beyond the point where we're supposedly meant to be done with our original teachers as, and like, no matter how far that goes, at some point you become your own mentor and, and or seek out new mentors who may not be literal teachers, but can nevertheless provide emotional and therapeutic lessons that characters are able to take to heart. And it's at this point I feel like I should queue up that uh, a section of that one monologue that Alex did from Guardians of the Galaxy 2. Yeah. You, you, <laughs> you know that I was thinking of that while I was yeah. writing that, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's, that's why that this means a lot to me, is that a lot of uh, popular media for, like, you know, in terms of anime and, uh, like, action, they, they look at characters who are at quite young stages in their life, but mm-hmm. I, I appreciate those stories that actually look at characters who are quite far along the way, but they experience something that does make them reevaluate. because it's not that I... It's not just that I appreciate the sentiment that it's never too late to 
learn and improve yourself. I need that. I need that kind of that hope to say that you can, that people never stop developing. And for Hacker, it almost comes too late. He waits almost like the latest he possibly could before he would go over into a line that he would not be able to step back from. But even then, even as close as he gets to that line, it is still not too late. And it's at that point where he actually does develop and take the experiences that he had up to that point and realises I need to do something to teach myself or seek someone who can help me learn this vital stuff. I mean, when we get to the final subject, Mm. the thing that he learns more than anything else is not merely that he needs to be open to teaching from other sources other than feeling he can take care of it all for himself. He needs to accept that the way that he had been doing it up to that point was wrong, and he needs to accept humility. Mm. And we're going to, I think, leave it there for now. That feels like a good stopping point. Mm -hmm. Uh, For people that cannot see the list that we are going off of here, we have made it all the way to point number five. (laughs) Point number five is what we have Uh, next. We have five pages left of stuff that we wrote beforehand. Point number five, by the way, has like one, two, three, four... Uh, six subsections in and of itself so at the rate why do we do this to ourselves Greg (laughs) Uh, at the rate that we're going at we may need one or two more two hour sessions to cover all this we'll we'll see how it goes but uh, it's been an exciting journey for us so tune in next time for more Tiger Talk yeah yeah, exactly. Yeah. Tune um, in next time. <laughs> there's, there's not much more no. we can say. So, like, uh, you know what? I, I will say that as much as exhausted as we sound, we put the work in because we love the material, and this last part deserves this amount of discussion. So, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So. Woo! So. Yeah. Well. So, uh, in another week or. I guess if this session gets divided up into two in another, well, it'll still be another week, uh, one way Mm -hmm. or the other. But uh, we will see you next time for another trip once more into Rama through the wind door. I'm dizzy. (laughs) Looking back on our conversation now is a bit of a learning experience in and of itself. Re-listening to what I said and how my opinion shifted over time after talking and taking in the words of others. And it makes me ponder how this shaped my thoughts in our final episode, and how it will shape the ancillary thoughts I have when editing that episode. Ideally, we never stop learning. This podcast itself is a learning process. And I'm glad for it. At time of editing, we are hours away from our Stone Spring Maidens quick review, so that will be the very next thing we put out on the podcast feed. 
After that, we'll see how much space our continued ramblings take up after polishing the remaining four hours of talking left on my docket. To close us out, I swerve away from the more thematic world music and back into the realm of the personal. While much of the lyrics of the song are snippets of a modern life that don't fit into the world of Tiger's Eye, the overall theme of it is the need to learn from your past. Because we all make mistakes. None of us avoid life without making them. You can't go back and fix them a lot of the time. You just have to recenter yourself, teach yourself, and move into the rest of your life, striving to do better. Sometimes, the best way to remind yourself is by writing it down. That's what Sharon reminded me once. Sharing your thoughts with others, or even just externalizing them, helps you learn. That could be one of the biggest takeaways from making art. Whether it's the songwriting and singing of our outro performer, whether you're an author writing a series of books that build the kind of world and stories you want to see, or even if you're just a podcaster, talking about the stories that are important to you. Until next time, this is Anna Nalik with Breathe, parentheses, 2 a.m. 2 a.m. and she calls me cause I'm still awake Can you help me unravel my latest mistake? I don't love him, winter just wasn't my season yeah, we walk through the door so accusing their eyes like they have any right at all to criticize hypocrites. You're all here for the very same reason. Cause you can't jump the track with like cars on a cable and life's like an hourglass glued to the table. No one can find the rewind button, girl. Yeah.
Oh 